everyone, and welcome to We Should Probably Be Studying. My name is Paula Kincaid, and I am joined with my co-host and dear friend, Nick Johnson. Nick, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paula? Oh, I'm good. I could not complain. So if you're new to this podcast, be sure to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast streaming platform you're using, because that will help spread awareness of our podcast through some sort of fancy algorithm that makes more people see our show. So be sure to give us a five-star rating. Yes, we need to stay in the algorithm. Also, uh, make sure you hit the follow button so you can stay up to date with our future content. So we are just a guy and a girl trying to leave our mark in the social sciences. And the purpose of this podcast is to get the behind the scenes take on really interesting articles being published in the top management and organization journals from the people who know the work the best, the authors themselves. Whether or not you're a nerd at heart like me and my co-host Nick, or just a regular Joe or Jane Doe, we hope to provide an outlet for all people to learn about really interesting and insightful research, regardless of who you are and what you do to contribute to society. So sit back and relax. And enjoy our show. This is We Should Probably Be Studying. Today, we are joined by Madeline Tubiana and Trish Rubottom. They had their paper titled Stigma Hierarchies, the Internal Dynamics of Stigmatization in the Sex Work Occupation, recently accepted and published online with Administrative Science Quarterly. All right. You ready to bring them in? Yep. Hi. Hello. Hello. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Oh, it's been an eventful morning. I have a two-year-old son, and I woke up, and his eyes were, like, matted shut with some type of, I have no clue what. I've never seen it. I've seen it in, like, cats before, but I've never seen humans have it. So I was a little worried this morning, but my husband is taking my son to the doctor to find out if it's, like, some type of infection or if it's, like, a clogged tear duct or something. Oh, no. It's probably pink eye. Oh, see, I've never had pink eye, and I don't know if I've ever seen anybody with it, so... Could be. My sister used to get it all the time when she was little. Oh, there's a new thing to learn about every day, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) When you have a two-year-old? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Other than that, it's been actually a very great morning. (laughs) Good. So, I'm Paula. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Paula. And I am Nick. Nick. Nice to meet you. We're both from the University of North Texas, like I said in my email, and we are doing a podcast that can help junior scholars, PhD students kind of get the behind the scenes take on articles that have been published in the top journals in our field. And just to learn more about the um, process of uh, your research project and how you guys work together. So that's kind of the gist of what we're going to be getting into today. So I guess we can just start off with uh, how about each of you tell us a little bit about yourself, both academically and personally. Thanks for doing this. What a great initiative and nice to meet you both. So I guess like academically, I am an associate professor in the Desmarais Chair in Entrepreneurship here at the Telfer School of Management in Canada, the University of Ottawa. And uh, I'm really interested in what stalls and fosters social change. So that's kind of the, the guiding question that is behind all my research. Oh, I'm hearing an echo. Sorry. Um, I have various interests that connect that. So what is the role of institutional process? What is the role of emotion, stigma and entrepreneurship in influencing social change? So that's kind of like the the quick and dirty academic me. And personally, I don't know how personal you want to get. Um, I won't go that far. Trish already knows that I classically overshare information. So I will just say um, I, I'm a mom and uh, a cottage girl, which means I love to be outdoors. I love being near the water. I love getting outside. And I care about, you know, the earth and it mm-hmm. and us being able to live on it um yeah and so you know how can we make this a better place for all of us and what can we do and so my personal passions are my academic ones as well and so they there's overlap there okay and i'm trish rebottom and i'm uh an associate professor in hr and management at the de groot school of business which is at mcmaster university in hamilton canada and Madeline, my answer is very similar to Madeline. So we, we both really study processes of social change. Um, 
I'm really interested in how marginalized people create social change. So whether that's through social movements or in this case uh, that we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship and other means that marginalized people can use to change the world. Um, so that's kind of what I focus on. Um, and then personally, I am also a mom. I have a 12 year old son um, and I live in Hamilton. Um, and that's about it. Have you both lived in Canada your whole lives? Mostly, yeah. I, I did a year in Ireland uh, with school, um, but yeah, the rest has been in Canada. I'm a Canadian through and through, but I lived in Australia, did my undergraduate degree in Australia. I spent some time uh, living in Israel and New Zealand um, and have been lived in different places uh, across Canada. But yeah, most of my serious life let's call it that has been back at home mm -hmm. that's so neat i hope i can travel that much <laughs> um so how did you two start collaborating together well this is a fun we both did our phd at the same institution so kind of like you and nick maybe um yeah. and but trish was a little bit ahead of me so and we were in different areas so we weren't like right in the same space but we were we took classes together we knew each other and then Trish can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I believe what happened is that Trish was writing a book chapter and uh, she reached out to me and said, hey, this is after I think you had, you had finished. Um, yeah, I had just finished and was trying to take all the things that didn't have homes from my PhD, all those things and finish them up and get them somewhere. Um, so this was going to be a book chapter but I was really struggling with how to make it better and figure it all out. So I wanted a co-author for it. Um, and Madeline, we'd had courses together um, and I knew sort of our research interests aligned. So I asked Madeline to jump on and then, yeah, we've been working together ever since. Yeah, we I, we kind of, well, at least I, I can speak for myself, but I fell in love with working with Trish. I don't think like, you know, you can work on different projects with different people, but um. We click, I guess you could say. Yes, definitely. I have had relationships, uh, working relationships where I love working with the other person. And I've also had relationships where I'm like, oh, I'm glad we did this one. Let's <laughs> leave it to that. Let's not spoil it. Yeah, I think we just have a lot of fun working together. and We both think about things not in the same way because we complement each other in a nice way as well. But like we're interested in the same things and really figuring out the same things. So we'll get into sort of side tangents when we're working on things because we just want to figure it out um, and love having those conversations. Have you worked together in the past or is this paper uh, the one that we're going to talk about today the first time that you've uh, collaborated? Well, outside of the book chapter. Yeah. So, yeah, we did the book chapter and then we kept kind of working with each other this that paper though this paper the RASQ paper is one of the papers from our biggest empirical project that we've been working together for a long time so in some ways while it's not our first one maybe it's our favorite so yeah, yeah I'd say like we we really complement each other and I think that we just work together in a really similar way we've called each other academic soulmates because that is how good it is to work together We'll just get on a call like we're working on the paper. We'll get on a call. We'll just keep going and going and going. Get back at when we love and and the style, I think, works for both of us. It's the way we work and that um, makes the process enjoyable and it helps you through the crunchy and hard bits of, you know, getting a paper through, I guess. Yeah, for sure. So give us an elevator pitch about your paper for maybe the listeners that haven't read it yet. Okay, read it, and I'm going to tell you. Okay, so yeah, the papers um, really about how the dynamics of stigmatization unfold within a stigmatized occupation. Mm -hmm. And what we kind of reveal is that not only are stigmatized occupations or dirty work not necessarily safe havens, but we detail the ways in which stigma hierarchies are constructed by the stigmatized in ways that elaborate, borrow, and adapt perceptions of stigma. And then we also talk about what this leads to and, and introduce the idea of stealth organizing and ultimately a bounded antitonivity. Neat. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because na naturally, I feel like you would assume that if you're part of um, marginalized community or a stigmatized um, work environment, that you would have a lot of support and that there would not be internal stigma, you know, occurring. 
But in your paper, I thought it was really interesting that you were able to find that there is a hierarchy and there, in fact, is stigma within a stigmatized work environment and stigmatized community. So um, I thought that was really interesting. And I was curious, how did you start working with this particular marginalized community? Is it um, just maybe you knew someone that had previously been in sex work or um, was it you just went out and found a marginalized community? So that was, it's it's a very bizarre story. So very random uh, story. So I'm, I was on the board of an organization, a charity, and they needed to figure out their stance on sex work. Um, And it was because the laws were changing in Canada and there were social movements jumping up. um, And the organizations, these feminist organizations, some were actually very opposed to sex work and some were very for choice that women have choice to engage in sex work. Um, And so it became this issue that you needed to take a stand. And that was my first understanding that there were two sides coming from feminism, like coming from what you think of as the good side, um, that there were two perspectives and they were both very, very passionate and very, very adamant that their side, their perspective on the issue was better for the women. Um, And so that was the launching point. We study processes of social change. So these social movements um, around the new laws that were being created really was interesting because of those two sides. So that was our starting place. We didn't know anyone in the field. Um, We had no way into this context, which was a bit crazy when I think of now how long of a process it was to gather the data Um, It's a bit crazy to jump into a marginalized community without any connections. For sure. And that's why I was really curious as to how you guys had gotten into this um, area, because I feel like a lot of it is hidden work, you know, and how are you supposed to study something that they try to hide? And um, you mentioned that the uh, Canadian laws were changing at the time. For those of us that are not in Canada, um, what were what laws were changing? So the laws before this, there was no law against sex work specifically, but there were laws around it. So you couldn't communicate for the purpose of sex work. You couldn't commute. You couldn't support it like you couldn't um, support someone who was engaging in sex work. So third party work um, and the those laws were struck down by the Supreme Court of Canada. So um, a group of sex workers actually challenged the laws. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, you're right, this is unconstitutional um, because it increases uh, safety risk. So they struck down the laws. But what they did in striking down the laws is they actually gave the government a year to put new laws in place. So the sex workers themselves had been hoping for a space of decriminalization um, where just labor law exists and it's a job like any other job. And that is not what happened. So unfortunately, we had a conservative government at the time. So the situation was not looking good. um, And that's where the social movements emerged on either side to try to influence the government in the laws that they were going to put up. So it was that year before they um, introduced what the laws were going to be, where they were sort of asking the public, putting out um, calls for information about the industry so that that could support the creation of the laws and the social movements. There were protests in the street um, trying to influence in both directions. So wanting decriminalization and wanting sort of recriminalization. Well, what ended up happening? So recriminalization, but in a different way. So we adopted what's called the Nordic model in Canada, um, and that criminalizes the client. So before communicating for the purpose of sex work, it was the sex worker themselves that would get arrested. Um, In this new law, it's the client that um, is doing something illegal. Mm. So they and then still the same communication laws um, and actually stricter communication laws where advertising places where you would advertise can get in trouble any third party providing security, driving, accounting, any of those business support services that you would want, those are all criminalized as well. 
Wow. That, that breaks my heart because, you know, I have no problem with like sex work. If someone wants to engage in it, go right ahead. You know, it's their life. I have no right to tell them what they should or shouldn't do. And I feel like these laws really would make it more dangerous. And that's really unfortunate because it's already a dangerous industry to begin with. And I feel like we should be helping and not hurting. So that's such a bummer. I'm glad you were able to do the study and really shed light on this. And I think the fact that we're able to do research on this helps bring down the stigma on it quite a bit, in my opinion. Hopefully. Yeah. I, I mean, what we saw was this huge impact of stigma that pushes everything underground and the laws obviously don't help. They push things underground as well, but the stigma itself and how stigmatized people are is part of why it stays hidden. And when things are hidden, that's not great for the people participating. Yeah. I think that the stigma is like, you know, a huge challenge in having open conversations. But one of the things that I think is worth noting about our process with this is that your stance on this is really complicated. So we didn't write this paper as a political stance and we had to really um, take our time to include everybody's perspectives. And one of the things we had to do methodologically is actually split the sides of data collection and talk to people who were abolitionists and talk to people who were pro. And I think in the process, we came to see the real complexity of people's perspectives on things. Um, and and we we choose certain language and we've made certain choices, but I don't, I think that one thing that's universal across all of this and the very different perspectives that everyone has on what should be, what shouldn't be, what the laws should be, what everyone is, is that the stigmatization, regardless of the laws, is problematic um, right. at all levels. And the fact that it carries into the occupation is what, like you said, Paul, at the beginning, is surprising. Like we've studied other stigmatized things. They're supposed to be their, their people. You're supposed to have a go-to person. So the fact that the stigmatization is so severe that they can't, it is so hard to find anywhere to be safe is detrimental on so many different levels. Yeah. Whenever I was reading through your paper, I noticed that you did something that I don't normally see very often in qualitative work. And it was where you did not provide like specific quotes from social media or like other media sources because you were worried that it would jeopardize their identity and bring it out. Um, I understand that. It totally makes sense. But did you receive any feedback from reviewers um, or the editors or anything about the decision to um, keep that anonymous? Or did they push back and say, no, for transparency purposes, we really do need to see this? How did that work? They were actually really, really supportive and excited about our honesty. Oh, good. Um, and I think that and one reviewer even asked us to like really even explain more because they want to set the precedent that people, you know, can say and do this. And I think it would have been different if we had no data we could directly quote. So we had that was supplementary data to our interview data. Right. And it helped us make sense of things. Um, but we still were able to show. So we had to show a lot. And in the final paper, there are tables, but we had so many tables and so much data yeah. and we had to cut it. Um, yeah. So. I think that um, we didn't have any problems with that uh, at all. And I'm glad that we were able to do that and be really serious about protecting our participants and our, our promises of um, sure. being anonymous. So I think that, yeah, I, I was really thrilled with that, the reaction to that during the review process. So moving forward to that, for researchers who are thinking about conducting research on vulnerable uh, you know, populations or stigmatized industries. Do you have any advice on, you know, what to consider or think about along the way in that research? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think both of us can chime in on this one. But the first one is, is I think that is the lesson for us is that I don't think we should assume their marginalization, their stigmatization, their experience. It's really easy to come in. Okay, you talk about sex versus them, be like, come in and be like, what's it like to be so stigmatized? Or what's your experience of this? And are you th this? Or are you that? And that's the reason that it was so hard to get sex workers to speak with us in the beginning was because they were so used to feminist academics coming in and telling them that they were exploited or marginalized or somebody telling them this about and um we had to really take that layer off to be able to kind of come in and be more open and let them talk about their experiences and whether or not 
they felt marginalized, stigmatized. In what ways? You know what I mean? And that's where, and I think Trish can talk more to this, is this paper, we don't talk about entrepreneurship, but we have another paper at AMJ. And when we started talking to these individuals about their businesses, about something they did that they valued of themselves, then our interviews went much better. And then we started to see where stigma really did happen because it flowed naturally and we weren't asking them about these particular things. We were focusing our light on something that they felt good about and and giving them a voice for that. So I think that this paper really is only possible because we did the other paper at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I think I can jump in for that. Um, I think the way we we didn't frame the research around community and stigmatization and community because this paper sort of came after it came out of the data. Yeah. So what we did do is frame it around entrepreneurship. And I think that built a lot of um, trust with people when you approach them saying we're interested in entrepreneurship in this space. Um, then they're much more willing to come talk as opposed to, Madeline mentioned, the people who are labeling them victims, um, but also the people who are labeling them as empowered. Both sides um, people have problems with. Um, and so by just saying we're interested in entrepreneurship, it was such a different perspective. Most of the people in the emails when we were talking about that would come back and be surprised and in a positive way and wanting to contribute to the research because it was coming from a business school, it was entrepreneurship as opposed to most researches, sociology and uh, public health and all looking at whether people are empowered or victims. Um, and we had our, our first framing when we were looking at um, social change, that was definitely a harder sell because that's such a complicated thing and because it's so ideologically based. They didn't trust that we weren't coming with one side or the other. Um, so that they, that response was not so great. They weren't so interested in participating then. But once we met a few people um, and talked with them and shifted to entrepreneurship, the response we got was very different. And like Madeline said, the, we didn't start out by asking about stigma and entrepreneurship. We started asking about their business and then stigma would come out somewhere in the conversation. Just to add on one thing about one last piece of advice is that, that all of this requires patience because this is a long process. This did not happen like quickly. You know, we started out with the social change and we got to talk to activists and that worked, but the but we had a very small sample. And there was a point where Trisha and I were like, okay, maybe this is just going to be a super small paper. Oh. And then we made this shift into entrepreneurship and then we started getting access, starting getting access. And then we saw at the same time, these community dynamics happening. And once we had sort of got momentum, then we were able to come back and actually do a round of more targeted interviews asking about community dynamics. But the the key point for people to you know understand and appreciate is to take your time, slow relational mm-hmm. um, approach is kind of needed if you're doing that. How did you initially gain access to individuals who engage in sex work? And, and you know, like when you did, you know, did you just get a few contacts and then kind of use like a snowball method, you know, to continue gaining a sample? Yeah, that was that was really hard. So um, obviously, you can see in the paper, the laws changed in 2013 and we're just publishing the paper now. Um, but we really were gathering data for most of that time. It was seven years of actual data gathering. Um, so when Madeline says slow, she means really, really slow and taking your time and it really is worth it. Um, but to gain access, so we went out to protests. So, so in a, we were lucky in that sense because there was this public access point. Anyone is welcome to come to a protest. We would join the protest and start marching with them. Uh, talk to the person next to us as we're marching down the street or standing in front of a building. And that was our first point of gaining trust and having contact with people. In-person contact worked way better than email. Email was not helpful. Email, I don't think there was anyone we got from a cold email. There were a few Twitter connections that we got later on in the process um, once we set up a a Twitter account and we could put our perspective, the type of research we were doing on the Twitter account, have followers. 
Um, and we actually created two different Twitter accounts for each side of um, the debate. Um, so that, that worked a bit. There was some contact, but in person was by far the best way. Uh, we never had someone say no if we met them in person and then asked for an interview after that. So the protest was the first way we did that. But then we just started going to the spaces that we could access. So they were doing porn shoots in sex clubs. So we would go to the sex club and hang out, watch the porn shoot, introduce ourselves, and then um, ask if we could do an interview after the after the night. Um, and everyone that we met in person said yes. Wow. I will just say that I think it's worth mentioning that our two Twitter, Twitter profiles did were quite helpful, and we had to actually set them up completely separate. So that's another way if you don't have access to public events. So if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't have these public events. Absolutely. But we each set up two different Twitter profiles, public explaining. One was, again, um, for the abolitionists, and then the other was the decrim. And we approach people through those Twitter activist sides. Um, and so that was a, a, an approach we did use. And then snowball sampling off of that. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that might be helpful for other people that have a situation where they don't have as many public access. Yes. Yeah, that is so neat. I mean, I wish I could do research like this. I, I would like to. It's, it's just so interesting. And I, I was just curious how long it took from the time. I know you did seven years of the data collection. So if it's seven, eight, nine. It'd be two. So two years that it was under review. So we submitted April 2018. Okay. Oh, okay. And it was accepted December 2021. Oh, okay. Well, that's not extremely long. Um, did you typically have like three or four months in between your um, revise and resubmits, or was it a little longer? ASQ is fabulous for not putting quick timelines. So a lot of journals give you three months. You ask for an extension, extension. ASQ will start out giving you a full year. Oh, cool. And, you know, during that, the process of this revision, there was a lot of life events going on. Oh. Um, for us, I my daughter was born. My oh. father died. COVID happened. Um, that's just on my side. And yeah. so ASQ it really respects your process. We talked about seven years of data collection. We were collecting data through that process still. Oh. Um, we and, and we collected data during for the second and maybe even the third revision. I say can't Trish will know better. But um, so that was going on because we were still doing other projects. So we have another project that's still out of this that we're doing more deep dive for. So it, it was um, it was great to have that flexibility from ASQ to take our time, be able to go back to the data and really try and polish our ideas. Yeah. Um, I wonder how, and maybe if you guys were collecting data during COVID, um, do you have any um, insight into how COVID might have impacted sex work and the um, sex work industry? So not really, um, other than at the beginning, because it was more at the beginning that our, we were collecting the data. So other than the fact that it completely shut down any in-person um, work that was being done, and as many people as could switch to online work. So um, meaning mostly erotic webcam. Um, so people who were escorting would switch to webcam when they could. Um, that's really the only bit of um, information that we have because it was the beginning of COVID and sure. we didn't see sort of that play out in the long term. Yeah, because we were, you know, we were really wrapping up at mm -hmm. that point. And the project that was still kind of ongoing was a project that's a supplement to this. I don't in the paper we talk about burlesque as being kind of uh, kind of extracted because at the top. So we have another paper with a PhD student of mine, and she watched burlesque performers start to go online and do virtual shows because she couldn't attend the actual performances anymore. But what we didn't get to do is to talk to people about their lived experiences of trans through that transition. Um, which I think would be certainly an interesting one as the dynamics are always changing as we were doing all these interviews, social media policies change. So we talk a lot about the impact of Twitter. Twitter had a really great way for people to find organizing, but Twitter has become more and more aggressive and, and harder. We talked to an, an interview. We talked to some people several times. We went back to one of our webcam interviews 
they lost their Twitter account was shut down. They had, like, you know, what I mean, all their connections. So, you know, the things change over time and um, we don't capture all of that change. Yes. So I'll say, um, so you had seven years of data collection and then you just was ASQ the first journal that you submitted to? And if what you're shaking your head now. <laughs> well, yeah, what? Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I was saying, no, this wasn't the first paper that came out of the project. So the first <laughs> paper that came out of the project was the entrepreneurship paper that went to AMJ. So this was the first journal for the community paper, yes. So when you first submitted to ASQ, we're always curious about confidence levels. So when you submitted this, you're like, oh, yeah, this is a sure in. You know, we're, um, there's a good chance we're going to get an R&R. &R. Anybody who's journal uh they have not i don't know there's gonna have a rejection slap down to humble that to eat some humble pie there i but i can say uh, trish and i because we were kind of writing the entrepreneurship paper and the community paper simultaneously a little bit trish was leading the entrepreneurship one i was leading this she's faster than me <laughs> i'm slower for some of the reasons i said before um and I had at the time, I think I felt more I felt more confident about this paper than the entrepreneurship paper. But I think you felt maybe the reverse. I felt the reverse. I felt more confident about the entrepreneurship paper. And I mean, that is how we wound up deciding who was taking the lead. We both were passionate about the different angles and sure that there was something in the literature that we were contributing. And, and but it was. Yeah, I, I was sure that was the entrepreneurship one and people would see the entrepreneurship one and Madeline was sure that it was the community one. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we kind of we were like, OK, well, what we hope is that one of them will yeah. land, you know what I mean, yeah. in, the, in the place we wanted. And so I think that I I think we both loved this paper and we I really felt passionately about communicating this insight that really surprised me. And we've been working with stigmatized and marginalized populations before. So I knew we had a nugget of a good idea, but that doesn't necessarily mean you land in a good journal. You know what I mean? There's so much luck, process, so many other things going on there. So I'm happy it worked out, um, but we wouldn't have been surprised if it didn't either. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think for me, there was a turning point when we figured out what the paper was really about I was like that's when I became really like okay yes this this paper should land this should work this is a great contribution and it was figuring out and we hadn't started with this exact framing of it that this was the internal dynamics of stigmatization um the findings were still very very similar but we didn't have that sort of one sentence that captures captures both the gap in the literature and the findings. And that one sentence, as soon as we had that one sentence, I was like, yep, that is, and it shaped kind of the, the language we used, what we highlighted, what because there's so much going on, what had to be in the background um, and what was the focus. And for me, that was the turning point in really seeing, okay, yes, this, we have something here. And that happened during the review process? It did. It did. I mean, we had the basic idea that, you know, we were looking at community and how they did these hierarchies, but it took a paragraph to explain it. We didn't have that one sentence hook that could capture and really connect it to the literature and the gap in the literature. I think that for me, that one sentence didn't come until and it was our editor who kept pushing and pushing and and saying no 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 keep going further you got to push this further um and was really helpful in getting us to that place yeah i was gonna just add in there that we were mike pratt did an amazing job for us in getting us to the best version of this paper like for me that was in my head but we hadn't articulated so i wasn't hung up on it like that wasn't a turning moment for me but it was a like it, it, the same point that it was. It's just that the way that he he encouraged us and pushed pushed us to keep refining, make it clear, make it clear, push to that, keep it. It just it's really difficult process. I mean, I, I, anyone who's uh, who's listening or you know the R and R process is is so tough, and sometimes it really gets you down. Like it's so much work. But like one thing that I feel like Trish and I have both come to feel over time is that if you really like try and connect and listen to what they're saying 
it helps you get to the best version of your paper. It really does. Like in the end, I feel like this is the best version of the paper we could have gotten and we wouldn't have gotten there without reviewers and certainly not without Mike. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. at AOM in Seattle this uh, past summer, um, my advisor knows Mike Pratt pretty well. And uh, we were walking out. It was actually the ASQ reception and we were walking out and Mike Pratt was kind of over to the right of us as we were walking out and he had stopped my advisor Rhonda and said hello and I turned around and realized who it was and I like had a mini heart attack for a minute I was like oh my gosh I'm meeting like a superstar here and I was like I want to learn as much as I can in this like two minutes what was the most memorable um part during the either the data collection or, you know, during the paper writing process, what was the most memorable um, memory that you have of working together in either, you know, with the uh, participants or outside of participants? What was your favorite memory? Um, when I got the email that said it's conditionally accepted. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good reason. Now that is a good one. <laughs> I think I don't know how to answer that. I think that other than that, there yeah. were sort of several key points, I think, where things started to click and make sense to us along the way. So we'd have a couple interviews would go and, you know, you have one and you're not sure what to make of it. And then you have another and you're trying to put together all the pieces. And Madeline and I were constantly talking for both papers and all the data gathering. We were we worked really closely together. Um, but there were just certain moments where, you know, I remember calling Madeline from the car saying, oh, my God, this interview was perfect. And I think it changes the way we think about things. So there were a couple of those key moments that just changed how we were seeing things that got us really excited about whatever was happening at that point. Um, and those for me are the points that stand out. Okay. Well, I was, I was just curious if you have any advice for scholars who want to engage in qualitative work. Like, did you have any challenges that you would give tips to us so that we don't face those same challenges that you did? Well, I think I'd say that you're probably going to face the same challenges, but mm -hmm. what I, what we, maybe the tip is, is that it's worth it, you know, um, the struggle is worth it. And the struggle is kind of part of the process. You know, Trish was just talking about some of those key moments. And the, the it's it's kind of funny that some of the most joyful moments are when you're trying to work through. I remember this time. So Trish actually flew out to Alberta because I was at University of Alberta at the time. We were in my office. We had all of our stuff out and we're like, OK, we just finished kind of analyzing the data. And we're like, what is this going to be? You know, and we had white boys and we had a, had a conversation with Royston and we were like trying. And that's that moment with qualitative research where you're just coming out of all that immersion in your data and you feel like a lot. Of, I know you have a PhD student. So many people you feel like just it, this could be anything in a way, you know, mm -hmm. what are we going to do with this? And and that is a challenging struggle filled moment. And there's no quick answer to get you out of it, but that like we just discussing it we we had tables we had done lit reviews before we got there we had tables of the literature review looked at this and looked at that and we're like okay this is happening here and then trish was talking about but what about this part and at that moment is when we sketched out the idea for the two papers um for the entrepreneurship one and the community paper and allowed us and allowed us to say okay start to make sense of it and then that's where you your progress starts to roll. And it was like, okay, so if this is one I need to better, on, let me re-go back to the dirty work literature again and see if all these strategies, okay, these are what our people are doing. How does that connect to the literature? And then the same thing, you know, that Trish was doing around the entrepreneurship piece. What are they exactly doing? What kind of, so I think that my, I guess my overall tip is be patient with yourself. Patient. The struggle is part of the process and have a great co-author that you love to work with um, because that is the ticket. And I couldn't have done any of this without Trish. And I will ne I never want to do anything without Trish. She's so fabulous. <laughs> I was going to jump in with that same point. I think for qualitative work, even more than quantitative, but maybe not, I don't know. But having a co-author that you can really, really deeply engage and bounce ideas and challenge each other and push it further, 
the person that you can call in the middle of whatever you're working on um, to talk about it. It's so hard to do it without that. So I think having that other person is absolutely critical. And I know in a PhD program, that's really tricky um, because your dissertation is your own thing. But if you can use your supervisor in that way as the person you're bouncing thing ideas off of, but also developing the relationships with your colleagues is so, so important. I think probably one of the most important things you can do in the PhD program is having that, finding that person that you can say, okay, I'm working on my dissertation, but can we go over these ideas and bounce through like what I'm thinking? Does it make sense? Um, I think that's hugely important. You know, I think with the qualitative work, an aspect that is something that we don't really talk about a whole lot, but it's a good point, is that when you are engaging in the qualitative studies, you're getting so much data to be able to sink your teeth into and really engage with it. And there are opportunities to be able to pull out more than one paper from that. So I know qualitative work obviously takes a long time, but if you are in the right setting and you've got a really great corpus that you can go back and reference to, it's almost like it's the equivalent of two or three, you know, quantitative pieces with all different data that you had to collect. And um, I like the fact with qualitative, we can reuse our data as long as we are using a completely different framing and using different strategies to identify what's showing us. And for me, I really resonated with what um, you had said, Trish, when you said that, you know, you had these really cool findings and you you knew they were important, you knew they had to do with something, but trying to find the theory to link it into, that was the harder part. And I know with my experience with doing qualitative work, that's what I really struggle with. I feel like I can see the patterns and see something really interesting that's emerging from the data. But then I think, okay, now how do I link this back to the best theory? Because there's multiple ways you could take it. Which one's the best? And I feel like that's personally what I struggle with. So I really resonated whenever you were talking about finding that one statement that really encapsulated what you were trying to get across. Yeah, absolutely. And it is the hardest thing to do. I think another piece of advice I would give is just to keep things provisional. Each step along the way, know that you're going to change it, know that it's going to it's a step along the way and you have to go through all those steps to get to that best version of the paper. But there's a different mindset if you think that the draft you're working on is the draft than if you think that it is a step along the way and you're going to change every single word in that paper, um, probably multiple times um, as you keep going, because getting to that point of really, really understanding this is the finding, this is the gap in the literature, putting those together is so, so hard. Do you think you're going to get more papers out of this study? Well, I think that like the thing with cultivated research, like you said, is that you can get multiple papers, but sometimes you have to choose how many papers you want there to be. And the ASQ and the AMJ are our pride and joy papers out of this project. And sure. we have a burlesque paper with a PhD student that's hopefully going to find its way out. And we're writing a book. But the, I think that those are our big missions. I don't think we're going to be trying to hit a big journal with our work anymore. We're moving on yeah. because we, you know what I mean? So I'll let yeah. Trish add more. But like we have ideas all the time that could keep it going. It's more like we're deciding not to because. (laughs) Yeah, this is what I was going to say is I was going to say, yes, but. So (laughs) so I don't think we'll be doing other empirical studies with this data. I think that's absolutely true. But kind of side related theoretical pieces. So we're working with shame um, right now. And there's a couple different directions that that might go in. Um, a couple different papers. So it's very related to everything we did. Um, yeah. And it's kind of a fun place to be in to kind of just say, okay, we've been working and it comes from other contexts as well. So it's more just reflecting on everything we've done in the last 10 years um, and putting together some theoretical papers, side ideas that are in the other things, but don't really come out strongly. Like we weren't able to really theorize around shame. It was a piece of the story, but um, it wasn't the thing we were theorizing. So being able to go into that, it's a nice place to be in. But but yeah, I think academic or empirical papers, I think um, we're, we're done with those other than the book. 
<laughs> sure. Well, um, do we know what the title of the book will be called so I can keep an eye out for it? <laughs> Trish, do we want to reveal or is it too provisional? Uh, it's very provisional. So we're playing around with the idea of subjects of desire. Oh, cool. Thank you. Um, so the <laughs> book is really, and we have a hard time speaking about what the book is about because it's that it's that stage of what we're working on. Sure. Um, the book is about understanding how objectification impacts us and what we can do to challenge that and come out as subjects as opposed to objects. Oh, that is so cool. Well, I wish you the best of luck on that. And I will be keeping my eyes out for it because I will definitely be reading it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I would say is the book more academic focused or more non-academic focused? Because your your work is so fascinating. And I was wondering what our non-academic listeners could take away from this. Is that where the book is that going. is where the book is going. Absolutely. So it's uh, hopefully a book for a very mainstream audience, very non-academic. It's translating all the things that we heard um, and translating them into non-academic uh, language and lessons, actually, that we can take away from it. Yeah, we have a, a TEDx, TEDx talk that we did. It's like kind of basically a little bit of a teaser for the book. Um, and you know, doing this work changed us. Like we learned more than we ever expected that comes into our personal life. So this book is kind of us doing something very odd, very different yeah. and trying to translate that into conversations about what we can all learn. So mm -hmm. it's it's fun, but difficult. <laughs> Do you have any advice for PhD students or even junior faculty that you want to share about how you think you were able to be uh, successful in publishing at ASQ specifically, or even AMJ, because um, obviously, and I've, I have read that one too. Um, it's very good, by the way. <laughs> I think that um, I'd say two things, and then I'll let Trish add in more if she thinks. I think one is it's really easy when you get reviews to get pissed and talk about the, the, the classic reviewer too. They, they just don't get us this thing and get angry and frustrated and maybe you need to have a moment to do that but what I have found most helpful and I think Trish you can say whether or not you agree but and it also makes me think of something Sarah Kaplan said a long time ago which was you know sometimes what people are saying isn't the main point what is the thing that's underneath the issue so you know when you're writing a review you're not trying to well at least hopefully you're not trying to attack the paper you're trying to say something's not working what is it and then you might throw out a comment but what's the bigger thing is what's is taking the time to figure out what's the bigger issue that's holding the paper up and not just thinking about it in point by point. OK, I'm going to change this line or how am I going to convince them? It's to actually say, OK, what isn't working? Why is they getting that interpretation, which is totally not what we meant to do? What how do we need to fix it? And I think Trisha and I have a, a nice way of working with each other just to try and take that perspective, like let go of the anger, the frustration, say, OK, something's not working. Let's figure it out and see it as a bigger, big macro level fix and then worry about the little details. Um, so I think that's one way to approach it, to really see the positive in the process to transform the paper. And the other is to just recognize sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. Okay, I don't know that I have much to add because the first one was what I was going to say is really finding what's underneath what the reviewers are saying. Um, and sometimes you get advice like, well, you don't have to do everything the reviewer is saying. And while that's true on the surface level, I do think you have to address the problem. So you don't have to follow their solution and they may not tell you what their problem is. They may just say you should be doing X whatever X is, and they don't tell you what the problem is. And you really have to figure out what's the problem underlying it. If you don't, even if you do want to do X, you need to still understand the problem to make sure that X addresses the problem. Um, because sometimes it doesn't. And, and so I think, yeah, it's a really, to really think about what the underlying issue is. And it's really hard to do. And sometimes you don't guess right. Sometimes we've had reviewers come back and say, no, I'm still I'm still hung up on this same point. You didn't address it for me, oh. but they were willing to give us that the sort of the benefit of the doubt of, OK, I'm going to explain it to you again. I, I, you didn't get it. I'm going to explain it again. 
Um, and then we got another chance to say, okay, let's let's really rethink what we're doing and how we're not addressing their point because we thought we did. Mm. Um, so what's going on that we're missing there? Um, and we were really, really lucky. So luck is the other, <laughs> luck is definitely there. We were so lucky to have really supportive editors for both of yeah, those yeah, pieces. Exactly. Really, really helpful in, they took the time to understand the problems underlying the reviewers' concerns and to help us see what the problems were underlying the concerns. And they were really supportive in saying, you know, this is the piece, the, the way you need to think about this. And I see that you could go here or here. Um, but the underlying concern is this and really helping us in that process. Well, I think that's all that we had. Do you have any questions for us or is there anything that you'd like to plug into the episode and let everyone know what you're working on or what we can expect to see from you soon? No, I just uh, thank you for doing this. I think it's yeah. uh, really fun and, and and thanks for featuring our paper. We're, we're flattered and thrilled you know people are reading and you do this work for a long time and um and you can feel good about it but it's nice if it's read you know and get other people's reactions it, it's you know and so it, it makes us happy i think that you really enjoyed the paper and uh so thanks for that very much yeah, yeah. thank you and good luck with this i think it's a super interesting project um and something that yeah early scholars and phd wish we had this when we were phd yeah students. exactly i think it's a great idea so good luck with it oh well thank you so much and thanks for meeting with us we really appreciate it you can always email us if you ever need anything or if you think of something later on that you might want to pass our way um we'll be oh, we'll always be open to talk with you great thank okay, you thanks thank have you. a good day Bye. Bye. I love them. They are. They do some awesome work. They do oh some, yeah, for yeah. sure. And I mean, I love that they were so willing to, you know, give us more detail and insight into their study and, you know, how they even got involved with sex workers and um and because that's such a hard industry to try to get into to study and they make a very good point you you never want to go in and you know tell them oh you're you're stigmatized or you know things like that because i mean if they truly are marginalized and stigmatized they know that you don't have to tell them that you know it would be very off-putting and i totally get it um so I like that they gave a lot of practical advice in terms of if people want to get involved with doing research on vulnerable populations, how you could go about, you know, breaking into that community, you know? Mm -hmm. No, for sure. Actually, this is the type of research I wanted to do when I initially started a PhD. So well, I remember and remember yeah. me telling you at, mm -hmm. um, oh, the the um, the bar that looks like a library in Denton. Uh, you go up the stairs and it's hidden. Oh, Pascal's. Pascal's. Yes, we were in Pascal's because it was Anglin, Jeremy, you and me. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And um, we were talking and you had mentioned something about that. And, and I remember Jeremy was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And, and I was like, there was an AMJ that just did research on this. And I was like, I'll find it. And I don't know if I ever sent it to you or not. I meant to if I didn't. But yeah. um, but that's what I was referring to when we okay. when we first started hanging out that first day and um so whenever i saw they got this asq i was like this isn't the one that i read before because i'm i can almost guarantee the one i read before was amj and sure enough this was a second paper that had come out of their research